uh, the people that I get to see every Sunday and the blessing that they are to me. Lord, I pray for the, uh, the growth of your word in our hearts. That's what we need. We need your, your spirit to apply the word to our hearts, to know the truth, and then to have it um, fill us in our, in our inner being so that we become more and more like you. And please help that to, to happen, Lord. Please do it. We're here today because we want you to, to minister to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Numbers 27, 26, uh, beginning at verse 57. <clears throat> Finishing up the last. If you remember, we've been in the, the, the long list, the second census of Israel, and we looked at all that last week. But now we're just going to take a brief look at the, uh, the Levites. So 57 to 62, uh, who would like to read? We'll give you the microphone. There you go, Nathan. Just 57 to the end of the chapter? Uh, yeah, go ahead and read the whole thing. Right. Yep. These were the Levites who were counted by their clans through Gershon, the Gershonite clan, through Kohath, the Kohathite clan, through Merari, the Merarite clan. These also were Levite clans, the Libnite clan, the Hebronite clan, the Malite clan, the Mushite clan, the Korahite clan. Kohath was the forefather of Amram, the name of Amram's wife was Jechubed, the descendant of Levi, who was born in the Levites in Egypt, born to the Levites in Egypt. To Amram she bore Aaron, Moses, and their sister Miriam. Aaron was the father of Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died when they made an offering before the Lord with unauthorized fire. All the male Levites, a month old or more, numbered 23,000. They were not counted along with the other Israelites because they received no inheritance among them. These are the ones counted by Moses and Eleazar, the priest, when they counted the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Not one of them was among those counted by Moses and Aaron, the priests, when they counted the Israelites in the desert of Sinai. For the Lord had told those Israelites they would surely die in the desert, and not one of them was left except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Okay. Uh, initial thoughts by you guys as you read about this. Any, any observations? What do we do with this? Just move on past it. On to the next thing. The tribe of Levi increases from the first census by uh, 700. That's a little detail. Uh, which people? Yeah, that's not just 
that's not just referring to the Levites. That's, that's everyone, right? That generation, because they didn't go up into, when they, when they wanted to conquer the land this way and they refused. So that's the judgment on them for all that. So a um, couple things that I thought, Levi is, is divided into three clans, right? You've got Gershon, You've got uh, Kohath, and you got Merari, right? Um, one of the things that, what do they tell you about this clan, Kohath? Yeah, they had been rebels before, but just in the in the names, who's in this clan? Right, so you, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, right, so I, I don't know if you, it wasn't always obvious to me when you read the whole story that Moses is a Levite, I just think that's important that he is of the priestly line, you know, Moses isn't actually a priest because God will take the Aaron, his line, and these will be the actual priests. So Levites is a bigger clan than the priesthood. Right? That's just that's a helpful thing moving forward. The, the Gershonites and the Marites, they, they have um, important jobs carrying the... Um, the tabernacle, and then later guarding the temple, but they're not the priestly line. So, um, and they mention Aaron's four sons, right? Nadab and Abihu. What happens to Nadab and Abihu? They perish because they off, they gave unauthorized um, uh, offerings, and then you have Eleazar and Ithamar. And Eleazar is the one through whom Phineas comes. Phineas. Uh, and Phineas is um, important down the road. We'll see that later. Um, but I think it's just interesting that there's even sub-clans. The Libnites, the Hebronites, the Mahalites, the Mushites, the Koharites. Um, and they all have specific jobs um, in the temple. I won't go through all those right now. Um, what do we? Who's Jochebed? Yeah, she's the mother of all these got right here, right? Um, I think she's honored here in this. Um, her husband is Amram. Later on, down the road, even further, in David's time, you're going to get the Zadok, the priesthood there. So a lot of times when you hear these, like Phineas and Zadok and stuff, 
They're just all descendants through Aaron. Moses' line does not become priesthoods, you know, there. Obviously, Miriam's not. It's just through Aaron, and they're the Kohath. Um, even to this day, when you meet a Jew that is named Cohen, like their last name, that's a descendant of, like, the priesthood, you know, so... Um, I don't know if it's accurate all the way through. Just I don't know how. Yeah, it's kind of like Thompson. I don't know which ancestor of mine was named Tom. Um, I don't know how I got it, but so <laughs> um. Anyway, so the priesthood, and, and what do they tell us about the Levitical priesthood? There's a statement about them, uh, something that they don't have. No inheritance. No inheritance. No land inheritance, right. So that's a big deal. Um, it's going to set us up for the next story. So there's the 12 tribes, and they were all set up, did the census, and their, their inheritance would be according to the size of their tribe and by lot. Then you get to the Levites, and they have no inheritance in the land. But then uh, inheritance is going to come back up in the, in the next story. Um, God was true to his word. He was faithful He said they would not enter the land because of their lack of faith, and that is actually what happens. So just things like that. Uh, Covenant blessings are generational. We see that in all this. Um, You know, there could be more at this, but I want to get into Numbers 27 and the inheritance there. So let's read 1 to 4. Ryan, would you read that for me? Then drew near the daughters, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The name of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar, the priest, and before the chiefs and all the congregations at the entrance of the tents of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. All right. Daughters of Zelophehad. Okay. Who is Zelophehad? Right, so he's a he's one of he's a descendant of Manasseh. So therefore he should have an inheritance in the land. But he only had only daughters. Okay? So he has he has no son. 
in which to give the inheritance to. And there's a, it's implied in the Old Testament that you live on or you are carried on. There's a, there's a connection between one generation and the next. So as, as the inheritance goes to your children, it actually, you're actually partaking of it in some sense. Okay? So Zelophehad is, he is going to not have any inheritance in the land because he has no son to actually enjoy that inheritance. Okay? Now, there's a... a They give a list of the descendants of Zelophehad, takes it all the way back to Joseph. Now, have you ever have you ever heard, you probably have heard from me, but that when they give a genealogical list, sometimes that list is not complete. They skip generations. Well, this may be one of the clearest places where it does that. So, the time between Joseph and Zelophehad is 500 years. And the limited genealogies that we have right there does not account for 500 years. Okay? So, when they say that so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so... They're, they're, they're giving, it could be grandson, great-grandson, great-great-grandson. They're just showing the line going through, and they're connecting him back to Joseph. So the, the, and the reason they're doing this is because Joseph, Joseph has been promised an inheritance. Now, I know this is hard for us to even grasp thinking this way, but let's picture Joseph's inheritance is complete. This is his inheritance. And he's got many kids that are in his inheritance, right? But then you've got this, you've got this like section of Joseph's inheritance that is lost because there's no son to get that inheritance. So not only is this an issue that the daughters of Zelophehad, it's not really a, a woman's rights kind of thing, although women's activists might want to do this today, I don't know, but... It's not so much that, it's like somehow Joseph and Manasseh and Zelophehad are going to be slighted if they don't get their portion of the inheritance. That's what's going on. Okay? Uh, they give the names of all the daughters... Each, each daughter is given a name. You know, it's, it's not just the daughters in general. So that does, if there's a part of this that actually gives uh, honor and value to the, to the women, that's that, this portion. And, and the fact that they are able themselves to come and give a complaint to Moses, uh, it does show honor to the women in this, right? So what, let's look at their complaint in detail. What are the things that they say in verse 3 and 4? 
Ah, now why is that important? Our dad was not a part of the company of Korah. Why is that important? Right, so the implication is that Korah was actually cut off. So it can happen that you can lose inheritance, but it's going to be a reason for losing that inheritance, like Korah actually rebelling and God swallows them up. So we should not expect that Korah will have an inheritance because he's cut off. It's similar to what we would think of excommunication in the, in the land of Israel, right? It's like... Bam, in our day, excommunication. You're out of the church. You're cut off from, God's, from Christ and God's blessing. That's what happened to Korah. He swallowed up. What they're arguing is that Zelophehad, yeah, he died in the wilderness because he was a part of that generation that, that didn't believe. They didn't believe fully, and so they're cut off. But it wasn't this direct severing of my family. So they're making this argument that Zelophehad, even though he personally doesn't go into the promised land because he's part of that older generation, he should still have an inheritance. Which then is, this actually raised in my mind, because I used to think that if you didn't go into the promised land, that was a sign you're going to hell. With Korah, yeah, (laughs) I think there's an eternity in hell. But with Zelophehad, he doesn't go into the promised land, but it's possible that he still was a man of faith, that maybe from that initial rebellion, he repented and he's you know, you know tried to live faithfully through the um, throughout the forty years in the wilderness. But then he dies and he has no son as an heir. So this is their argument that they're making. They're coming to him uh, to Moses, and they're saying, "Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't truly cut off. He's just part of the generation that didn't make it." And because see the rest of the continuity between the first generation and the second generation, the implication is the, the, the first generation, even though they die in the wilderness, many of them are living on through their children and their inheritance into the land. God's faithfulness to his promise to them is lived out through their children. That's, that's the implication here. Again, if you don't understand generational stuff and covenants go through generations, it, it, this is, makes no sense to us. But there it is. So, um, this is the problem, and they take it to Moses, and we're going to see what um, goes on with Moses. So, verses 5 through 11. Uh, Mary, you want to read for us? Here comes the microphone for you. We're going to see how Moses rules in this case. Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and a rule, as the Lord commanded Moses. <clears throat> okay, so a couple things. First off, 
Moses isn't immediately aware of what should be done. What does that tell you? Right. In fact, the, the Mosaic law that he had received didn't deal with this particular situation. So he's, he's like, I don't know what to deal with this. Right? And so what does he do? He goes to God uh, and talks to God. Uh, by the way, this is after Moses had struck the rock, and he's not allowed to go in the promised land. But here we have God still talking with Moses, right, and interacting. So clearly, Moses is not cut off from God. He's still interacting with God, even though he can't go in the promised land. So here we go. Um, God tells him, the women are right. So they, their understanding, this portion of the inheritance... We'll just call it Z. It belongs to Z. Even if Z doesn't have a son, that, that inheritance should be his. So the point is that a, a true Israelite cannot lose their inheritance. Now, just to try to bring this into the New Testament, we're not trying to go to, to like our portion of the land and different things. What does the Bible in the New Testament say about your inheritance? Can you think of a New Testament passage? Where is your inheritance kept? It's in Christ. And where is he? Your inheritance is kept in heaven which means it cannot be lost. So this idea that, that a person's inheritance can't be lost, I realize that we're talking about a physical inheritance in a uh, what I would call foreshadow land of Israel, that the true inheritance is new heavens and new earth. But the concept is, if Zelophehad's inheritance can be sucked up and lost, that's a bad thing. He's got to have an inheritance. Just like your inheritance cannot be lost. It is kept in heaven for you by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, now I know we don't usually think of our inheritance as tied to the generations above us, but it is tied to Christ. It is tied to him. That he has purchased an inheritance for us and that inheritance cannot be lost. It's kept in heaven for you. And so just as you can't lose yours, Zelophehad can't lose his. That's the instruction that God is trying to do. And he says, this is not just a one-time situation. It just so happens that this difficulty actually is helping us to uh, develop a principle. Because it goes so far as to say, even if you just have daughters, what if you don't have any daughters? You lose your inheritance then? Next, it just keeps, you know, and you get to, the last one I love is, is the um, nearest kinsman of his clan. Now, you guys ever heard of kinsman? Yeah. Kinsman redeemer. Okay, so these are principles that we, you know, we'll go to Ruth and we'll say, oh, this is, she's got to have a redeemer and, and she gets an inheritance in the land because of her connection well, all those principles are really started here with Zelophehad. 
And so um, Jesus has purchased our inheritance. He's redeemed our inheritance. It's ours, period. Nothing can separate us from that. So even though it's strange to us in a physical inheritance in Israel kind of way and generational, if you, if you just get the principles of it, then you understand that this is God is teaching his people to understand our in, eternal inheritance in Christ. Yes, Mary. It's just amazing that if they that's an excellent, yeah, right, if, this, if they had just been, oh, I guess we lose our inheritance, we would have never learned this principle, right? And this going forward, and so you do see God's sovereignty, and you see the blessing of these women who clearly cared about the inheritance of their father, and theirs as well, but they're, they're, they're in, throughout the scripture, caring about the inheritance is a big deal, and so here they are doing that. So, you know, we as Americans don't do this as much today because we're just so fluid and transient and different things. But, but I think a, a faint shadow of this was, you know, if you watch movies like Tear, uh, Gone with the Wind and you see how committed they were to that piece of ground and carrying that on and passing it on to generations. That's like a faint, you know, uh, resemblance. It's actually kind of a little bit twisted because... With the resurrection of Christ, we're supposed to see that our inheritance is in the new heavens, new earth, and not just in this life. So, um, you know, Terah could be lost to the, to, uh, um, um, what's her name, Scarlet, but, but your inheritance cannot be lost. Go ahead. Right, so, that, so if, you, if you have the inheritance and you've only got like four people here, but now if you've got like four million people, their, their little portion is smaller and smaller. Which, by the way, it's one of the reasons why I don't think that the physical land of Israel is ever thought of as the actual true inheritance. It has to be the whole new heavens, new earth, because it's got to support billions and billions of people, right? Um, and so, but the fact of the matter is you have an inheritance, and it will be according to the tribe. You'll see this, uh, it, you know, why is it that when you get to the New Testament, Jesus chooses 12 apostles, 12 tribes, and everybody's got their inheritance, and it's, a, you know, I don't think we're supposed to think, well, I'm a, I must be of Peter, I must be of, you know, that's not the point. But the idea is Jesus' inheritance is complete, it's full, and every one of his children have a portion of that inheritance, and it cannot be lost. What's that? Many mansions. Many mansions, that's right. Uh, oh. You're absolutely right. And so, presumably, in those other situations, 
Well, it is true that, that as daughters go into a different clan, they, um, they, their inheritance is connected with their new husband in that clan, right? And so I think that that, what's that? No, 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 that's not wrong at all. And, and even if these daughters were to eventually go into another clan and get married, they would, they would be, they, the daughters would be part of that other clan. The question is, that's why it's not an issue of women, you know, gaining the inheritance at this point in women's rights. It's a, the whole issue is Zalofahad. Has he lost his inheritance? And even, even though that this may have happened in other situations, this is a clear statement that, that uh, Zelophehad or anyone else that finds himself in this situation doesn't lose their inheritance. So that Joseph's inheritance doesn't shrink. It stays the same. And, uh, and it's not just if you don't have daughters. The inheritance has to go to someone else in the same clan. You can't move it from one clan to another. So they each have their inheritance according to their clan, and it has to stay there. So, and this, is, this principle is also put forth in later on when it comes to the year of Jubilee. Let's say you become really, really poor, and you have to go into indentured servitude, and you actually take your inheritance and send it to a different clan. Like it's the, part of the clan of Joseph could be in the clan of, you know, Reuben. And because... He had a debt, and that guy said, okay, well, I'll, I'll take your debt. You can be my slave. That'll be my land. Well, in the year of Jubilee, it has to revert back to the original clan because it can't be lost to that original owners. So I don't know if that's explained it, but it's, it's not so much even a picture of even this present generation that's going on. It's a picture of eternality. Can a person's inheritance be lost through time? So that Zelophehad, who's no longer living, but in the Jewish mindset, he is living, and that land still belongs to him, can he actually lose his inheritance after he's gone? And the, and the point is, no, you cannot. You can't lose your inheritance. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, Howard, but you can further... Uh, <clears throat> Other questions or comments? All right, let's go to 12 through 14. Uh, Larry, you want to read? Yeah, it's 12 through 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this mountain of Abraham. And see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. And when you have seen it, you, shall, you too shall be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother was. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my, brother, my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh. In the wilderness of Zin. Okay, so what you see in this passage, Moses is taken up on top of a mountain, and he's this. It's called a barum, but it's 
it's basically another name for uh, Pisca, uh, Nebo, all these. And he is looking down on the promised land, right? Because that, in all this book of Numbers, the land is everything, right? So we're told in these short verses that Moses is not allowed to go into the promised land. Which means Moses, in essence, lost his inheritance. Okay? So he's, you, you would think, you could you at least ask the question he would lose lost his inheritance. But God actually speaks to him, tells him to go up onto the mountain and to look and says... Um, uh, you shall be gathered to your people as Aaron was because you rebelled. He doesn't ignore the rebellion. But the idea is this land is yours. So God is, even though it looks like he doesn't get to go into the promised land, God is putting, takes him up here to look at it, not to say, look, see what you're missing, but to actually say, look, this is going to be yours. Again, the inheritance is not just uh, given for uh, this life. It's an eternal inheritance, and Moses will enjoy it. This is the only way that you can connect Moses enjoying his inheritance with Abraham enjoying the inheritance with Isaac and us. We all enjoy the inheritance together on the day of the resurrection when Christ comes and sets up his kingdom. So this is all... Inheritance is everything in this passage. This is what puts everything together. Uh, let's just keep going. Uh, 15 to 21. Who's got the mic now? Uh, let's give that to Mike Starnes. And Moses spake unto the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out, and which may lead them in. That the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take thee Joshua the son of Nun, and man in, in whom is the Spirit, and lay thy hand upon him. And set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and give him a charge in their sight. And thou shalt put some of thine honor upon him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, and shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of Urim before the Lord. At his word shall they go out, and at his word shall they come in, both he and all the children of Israel with him, even all the congregation. Just read the last two verses as well. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation. And he laid his hands upon him and gave him a charge, as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Okay, so my statement that Moses certainly has God's blessing and will uh, have an inheritance in the promised land is confirmed by this passage. How? Yeah, I mean, God says to Moses, you're the one that's going to transfer the, you know, and if that's been removed from Moses because of his sin, then he shouldn't be doing this. And yet God still uses him as the one to transfer the power. So again, Moses is not perfect. He is not the Messiah. 
And God has to make very, very clear to people that the promises of blessing do not come from Moses. He's not the perfect Messiah. But yet he still is faithful as a member of God's house. And he is a faithful servant. And God is continuing to use him and Moses will have an inheritance in the promised land. Moses has a concern. He says, he says God, if, if I'm not going into the land, then what must happen? Got to have somebody else do it because the people need a what? They need a shepherd. They need a leader. And this is true really of every generation. Uh, God raises up leaders to shepherd his people. And from one generation to the next, those leaders are imperfect, but they, they do pass on their authority from one generation to the next. Um, now, God or Moses goes to God and he's asking who this should be. Maybe it's possible that Moses has an idea. It could be Caleb or it could be Joshua. And he's just not sure which one. There probably weren't too many people up on the list at that time. Um, but Joshua or Caleb could both be candidates. And so he goes to the Lord and asks, and God clearly chooses Joshua, which we believe in any authoritative position that God ordains. It's not just a, a decision of humans to do this, but that God makes the choice of his people. So Joshua is set apart by him. Now, what do they tell us about Joshua in verse 18? Yeah, a man in whom is the spirit. That's a strange comment because... You know, a lot of times prophets would have the Spirit come upon them, but here Joshua's told that in whom is the Spirit sounds a little bit more, uh, you know, does he mean indwelt? Does he mean he has good leadership qualities? Is he endowed for, by the Spirit for uh, leadership? Like, what exactly is going on? But it's not by accident, turn over to Acts 6.5, when the apostles need to choose more leadership. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte. So they, they, again, the same pattern that's established here between Moses and Joshua is the pattern that's picked up in the New Testament. They have to be full of the Spirit, God actually makes the choices, and yet they're, they're also making a choice. And so you can see these things uh, very much connected. Um, Moses lays hands on him. Same thing in the book of Acts. They lay hands on them. What's the point of laying hands on? Transfer of authority, transfer of power, right? So, and, and this is repeated throughout the New Testament. When Paul is being sent on his journey, he too... They pray over him, they lay hands on them, and then they sent them off. Uh, so that's a physical demonstration of the transfer of authority. And we do this today whenever we have a new elder, a new deacon. There's a laying hands on uh, as a symbol of the transference of authority uh, to the new generation. 
No, we would say that it's perpetual, that, that as long as a person is an elder, uh, they're always an elder. That's why we call John Elder Emeritus, because he, he's not, he didn't quit being an elder when he retired. He's always an elder. He's just not as active. He jumped the gun on Clark. See, Clark actually asked to have Elder Emeritus years before John, uh, but I wouldn't let Clark, so I couldn't say no to John. Anyway, uh, and you see also in verse 19 the language of commission. And we actually, when we have a, uh, an elder you know, coming in, we call it a commissioning service. So all these are uh, picked up by us from the Old Testament. A charge is another way to think of a commission. Um, now, there is one distinction here, though. Is Moses the only one who's participating in this commissioning of Joshua? Eleazar as well. So what's the significance of Eleazar having a role? Right. So Moses has a unique function because he was the this first uh, leader of God's people, and obviously Moses is extremely unique in that. God raises him up. God, uh, you know, gives him a special authority. All these things, but moving down, will Joshua as a as an individual have the right to pass on to the next guy after him? It'll be the job of the priest, which is a separation of powers, right? So that the, the one who's the leader doesn't just have that right. It's something that the priests actually bestow the authority. So this actually, I think, is somewhat modeled in England today. I'm not, those of you who are better on the royal families and stuff, isn't there a priest has to be the one that actually is a part of the transference from one king to the next? Isn't that, it's, it's not just... Um, Yeah, I mean, the, the, our government, England's government, was somewhat loosely modeled upon this kind of thing here. Certainly the separation of powers is there. Um, uh, so, And we should not, even though that Joshua is, is the one who follows after Moses, we should not expect Joshua to speak with God in the same way that Moses did. There's like a loss of that. Moses was unique at his time because God will only raise up another prophet like Moses when he raises up Jesus Christ. And he will be the one that God will speak to clearly. He'll be prophet, priest, and king. He'll have all these things together. But for now, Joshua is somewhat underneath and given authority by the priesthood. Those kind of things going on. Uh... And Moses does everything as God asks. So, pretty, pretty straightforward. Any questions on that? I know all this stuff in numbers is, is not easy to access. It's difficult to, to think about. But it does directly relate to much of what goes on in the New Testament. They didn't just make these things up when it gets to the New Testament. It's very much founded in things that they did 
in the Old Testament. Okay, so in chapter 28, just look at the titles in chapter 28. What do you see? Offerings, right? And what are the categories of those offerings? So there are there are daily. I don't know how to make this. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do it this way. So there are daily offerings. That, you know, obviously 365 days a year, there are daily offerings that are given. What's the next category in verse 9? Sabbath offerings. So that's only like one in seven, right? So I'm just doing it this way. So you have now the Sabbath offerings. So like the daily offerings don't stop when the Sabbath offerings start, Okay. What's the next category? Monthly. So you might have, I'm just going to put two together. It's the monthly offerings, okay? So again, uh, it'd be actually four Sabbaths, right? But then you'd have your monthly offerings, okay? But the Sabbath offerings don't stop, and the uh, daily offerings don't stop when you give the monthly offerings, okay? And then what's the next one? Passover. So this is what we'll call... Yearly. And there were three yearly uh, feasts. Okay, they're just talking about Passover here, but they're going to keep going. You're going to see Feast of Weeks. You're going to see Feast of Trumpets. You're going to have the Day of Atonement. And then you're going to have the offerings of the Feast of Booths. So you're going to see over two chapters, you're basically going to see the whole gamut of uh, feast of, of Israel, okay? And all this is connected to the temple. All this is connected to worship. Okay, now, I have written down here, just so you can, everybody clear on this. I'm going to erase this real quick. Um, the three feasts. <clears throat> Passover's feast number one. Feast number two, we're going to call first fruits. And then the last one, we're going to call Day of Atonement. And I say that weird because they give various names to them all. Um, the Passover is going to be the first month of the year. The 14th day. And it's also, this Passover is is connected to the feast of unleavened bread. Okay? So, Passover, first month of the year, feast of unleavened bread. It's connected to what great act in history? The Exodus, okay, and they are to do, it's, it's a kind of a somber occasion of affliction and they don't do any work. The first fruits, it is, um, 
actually the first fruits uh, on the 16th day. So Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 14th, connected to Passover. On the 16th, which is just like three days later, right? The priest will take the, the sheaf and he'll wave the, the sheaf in the, in the temple. And that is connected to the first fruits. But it's not actually, the, it, it's like, it's a part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but it's connected to the next feast. So then 50 days later, and that's why it's also called the Feast of Weeks. Okay, so 50 days later, um, they have, uh, it's to be like a, it's the feast of first fruits, even though that begins here on the 16th, 50 days later. And this is, the, this is the feast that they would begin only when they were in the land. And they were beginning to get a harvest. Okay, so it's a very much more celebration. It's also connected with the giving of the law in Scripture. Then the day of the trumpet atonement would be on the seventh month. And on the first day of that month. Um, sometimes it's called Yom Kippur. And it is, it's got various names. It can be the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of the Ingathering. Uh, and this is one of, besides the actual Day of Atonement itself, which is very somber, somber this, is a, this is complete joy. Because this is the time where you get the harvest in its full. So you got the Passover, unleavened bread, then you've got the beginnings of the, the eating the first fruits, and then you've got the complete joy. Okay? The reason why this is all important, because God is He's designed the whole history of Israel as an explanation of Jesus Christ and the salvation that you have in Christ. So Jesus is our Passover lamb. It's clear that he died on the cross as a fulfillment of the Passover feast. He deals with our sin, and this is where we get justification. Right? You are now just in the Lord. He earns your salvation. He purchases your inheritance. He says it is finished in the Passover. Interesting that, you know, just a few days later, there's this connection. Is, is Jesus rising from the dead and somewhat associated with the first fruits? I would argue yes, because he is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. Then. Fifty days later, the Feast of Weeks, the beginning of the receiving of God's blessing is connected with what event in the New Testament? Pentecost. The outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. Which the Spirit is the down payment of your inheritance. So you have this feast. What New Testament event does the final day have to deal with? This final feast. What, Robin? It's the second coming. It hasn't really occurred yet. That's the one we're still waiting on. His return, the wedding feast. The day of atonement, which would be the day of judgment. The final judgment before the Lord when he uh, makes judgment in every case. 
okay? And this is the, the fullness of your redemption. So Pentecost, I would relate to sanctification, and then this I would relate to glorification. Okay? So when God was establishing these daily offerings, Sabbath weekly offerings, even monthly offerings, and then yearly offerings, he is pushing his people to understand salvation. That's what's going on. That makes sense. I wanted to give you guys a big picture before we started going into the smaller details to see how that works together. Is that making sense to you? Yes. Well, these are the ones right here. All these are the three feasts. Yeah, this is the this is it. Now, there's other. Each of these feasts have little sub things going on at times, and it can get confusing. But basically, these are the big three feasts of the year. By the way, I used to. We had a guy, uh, Norm Bruinsma. Christine Bruinsma still comes here, and uh, Norm was a big guy on the Holy Spirit, and he would always say, "We celebrate the coming of Christ, Christmas time." We celebrate the Passover of Christ here. Why don't we have something to celebrate as an annual feast, uh, Pentecost? He would always argue that we should do that. And I'd be like, Norm, do you know how hard it is to try to think about having one more thing during the year to do? You know, it just, uh, but he, you know, obviously God doesn't mandate this in the New Testament that we should have a celebration of Pentecost. Uh, because the reality is more important than the foreshadow. But you can understand that it is a big deal. The pouring out of the Spirit upon the church is a big deal. And we should make sure that we give appropriate attention to the working of the Holy Spirit in our life today because obviously God thought it was important because he created a whole feast to point towards it. It's a good question. Other thoughts or questions on this? I hope, <laughs> I don't want to, I hope this isn't like too much self-lauding, uh, uh, but I can't tell you how often I have been confused by the feasts and their purposes. And I'm not the one that just did all this, but I, I would look at these, okay, here's all these lists of feasts, and here's this, and what do they connect? Other people making this simple connection to these three feasts with our salvation, I think is so helpful when you're understanding uh, these Old Testament feasts. So, <clears throat> we can get too bogged down in the details sometimes and miss the big picture. So, we're going to end with this and we'll pick up in chapter 28 um, next week and we'll go through these five priests. But I would encourage you, I mean, five, uh, three feasts. I would encourage you to go ahead and do that. Look at chapters 28 and 29 and, and try to fit them together. What's going on? Um, what kind of things are happening between the various uh, feasts and their connection with one another? So, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the book of Numbers, even though it is very challenging and very difficult. I am very thankful that you keep my inheritance and that it will never be lost. I am very thankful that you have given me uh, a shepherd 
in Jesus Christ to oversee uh, my salvation and to care for me. Uh, I'm also thankful that you uh, appoint under-shepherds to help your flock uh, to be better off. And I pray, Father, that you would bless your people through your shepherds and you would um, uh, continue to do your work of salvation through your spirit in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.